Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm your host, Chad Bowne, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This episode is about access to medicines to treat COVID-19, this ongoing pandemic that just won't seem to go away. Supplies of oral antiviral drugs remain super limited around the world, and that threatens to take a toll on global public health. Why supplies remain scarce, though, is a complicated story. It's not as easy as blaming big global pharmaceutical companies for failing to share their intellectual property. Some of them, in fact, are sharing their patents in new and exciting ways. But even that has just not been enough. To better understand today's challenges, I'll be joined by Prashant Yadav. Prashant is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, a professor at INSEAD, and a friend of the show. Hi, Prashant. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to roll along, the world is still struggling with how to keep people healthy. By now, we are all familiar with the amazing story of COVID-19 vaccines. Vaccines from Pfizer and BioNTech, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, Oxford, and AstraZeneca were invented in record time, and billions of doses were manufactured and distributed before anyone thought possible. Vaccines have saved millions and millions of lives and are an enormously important tool for global public health. But at the same time, vaccines just aren't enough. Because COVID is not going away, the world also needs treatments to help people recover after they contract the disease. And since SARS-CoV-2 is a virus, we need antiviral drugs. Scientists need to invent them. Companies need to mass produce them. So far, scientists have invented or repurposed two oral antiviral drugs that patients can now take if they test and find they've contracted COVID-19. One is from Merck and one is from Pfizer. Paxlovid from Pfizer and Moldapiravir from Merck are the two we're going to talk about today. But the really big question facing society right now is, how do we take the drugs scientists invent and quickly get them manufactured at global scale so they can be delivered to the world, especially to people in lower income countries? So Prashant, to start us off, how do you manufacture an antiviral pill like Pfizer's Paxlovid or Merck's Molnupiravir? Yeah, so to make these oral antivirals, which are not in, in many ways different from other antivirals and antiretrovirals, we need to start with having the formulation, the process chemistry, the steps required, the intellectual property of understanding that then about identifying the sources of intermediate material, the starting materials for making the active pharmaceutical ingredient. Then we need large plants which can make the active pharmaceutical ingredient, the bulk drug or the drug substance, as some people would call it. And then we need a plant to make the tablets and uh, package them, similar to what you would call as fill and finish for vaccine manufacturing. So we need equipment. Sometimes this is specialized equipment. For example, Pfizer's Paxlovid comes in a special form of uh, foolproof packaging. It's not in a pill in a bottle, but it's in a blister pack. And those blister packs have to be manufactured using specialized extrusion equipment, which are not routine things that some manufacturers have. So a combination of things have to come together to manufacture something like Paxlovid or Molnupiravir. So this is a pretty complex manufacturing process. You're going to need to understand the the intellectual property 
you know, how you formulate the, the, the chemicals together to ultimately get these drugs. And then do it at a commercial scale using plants, lots of specialized equipment and, and, and specialized raw materials to actually do so. Well, since last winter, these two drugs have been available here in the United States. Uh, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration authorized them for emergency use for Americans in December of 2021. So, so here in the U.S., who's making them? How are they being made? How long does it take to you know, take all these raw, raw materials and, and ultimately get them into a pill that can be given to a human at the end of the day? Yeah, so currently in the U.S., Pfizer is making uh, Paxlovid um, at, at its uh, site in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was being made in uh, their Ireland site in the past, or it's continued to be made in that site as well. And the way to think about how long it takes is dependent on when you start the clock. So, you know, assuming that starting materials and intermediates are available, and then when you start API production, till the time that you can get finished bills out, we are talking about something between two to three months for from start to finish of that portion of the process. Great. And so two months, and that's well after you've already sunk all the time and effort necessary to set up the plant, contact all of your input providers and make sure you've got all that stuff coming in. The Paxlovid, the Kalamazoo plant, I think that's the same one they're they're doing the fill and finish facility for the their vaccine as well. So they must be pretty busy up there in Michigan. I looked around and couldn't find exactly where Merck was manufacturing molnupiravir, um, but it's likely, we think, in their North Carolina plant here in the United States. Um, the, the thing that I could find in the Merck's, on Merck's website was the way they describe molnupiravir is it's a orange COVID-19 pill that is a Swedish orange opaque capsule with the Merck corporate logo and the number 82 printed in, in white ink. So that's how you know you'll get an official one if it's got all of those all those characteristics. Okay, so that's basically how you, you manufacture it, where it's being done. In the United States, how did we manage to get millions of courses of these pills uh, from Merck and Pfizer before everyone else in the world? Are we imposing export restrictions? So no, we are not imposing export restrictions on oral antivirals. The reason the United States managed to get early access in significant quantities to these two these two products was early investments by the government. So one thing we have to understand is that it's not individual patients who are buying the drugs. It is governments or agencies of the government who are signing contracts, paying the manufacturers. And so the U.S. government and its agencies had done advanced purchasing contracts with Pfizer to purchase a, a large quantity of Paxlovid for use in the United States. Same thing with Molnupiravir. And that's what enabled, on one side, the government to get early access. On the other side, it enabled Pfizer and Merck to go ahead and start putting uh, at-risk manufacturing capacity at significant scale even before the uh, products were EUA'd by the U.S. FDA. So the U.S. government signed contracts with these two companies in the, in the summer and fall of last year, even before they knew whether the Food and Drug Administration was going to authorize their pills for, for public use. And, and just to give everyone a, a sense of magnitudes, in its November contract for Paxlovid, the U.S. government agreed to pay $5.3 billion for 10 million treatment courses. That's about $530 per treatment course. 
and its contracts for molnupiravir last year, the, the U.S. government provided $2.2 billion to Merck for over 3 million courses of, of its drug. These first contracts are important because they guarantee to the companies that, uh, that, the, that the demand will be there. Guaranteeing a big enough market sends a signal to the companies so they can begin their costly and lengthy process of retrofitting their plants and, and getting their supply chains set up. Okay, so that's what they're doing in the United States and how we got access to relatively early doses of these antiviral pills. Are Merck and Pfizer also manufacturing their pills in plants outside of the United States? I think you said Pfizer's already doing something in Ireland. How about elsewhere? Yeah, so like any other company which thinks about its manufacturing network to be global, uh, and it's global not just to serve individual country markets, Pfizer, Merck, other large multinational pharmaceutical companies think about their manufacturing network in terms of various locations, some which are in-house, their own sites, where such sites have both the capacity and the technical expertise to make a specific product, and in some cases use trusted contract manufacturing partners, CDMOs. So I think both Pfizer and Merck are doing that. They have sites of their own. Like we said, the site in Kalamazoo, the site in Ireland, but they also are uh, looking at contract manufacturers such as Novasep in France or uh, Thermo Fisher in the case of Merck in Canada. So they are building a global manufacturing network of their own sites and of contract manufacturers, but to serve global needs using their own allocation method. So far, this seems like a familiar story, at least for those of us that have been following the trajectory of vaccine manufacturing. Companies like Pfizer and Merck can make these pills either by using their own plants or by hiring contract manufacturers like a Novacep or a Thermo Fisher to do it for them. This is what we saw happen for COVID-19 vaccines over the last two years. But it turns out that's not the only thing going on here. For these two antivirals, both Pfizer and Merck have turned to another complementary approach to help get more pills out quickly to the world, especially to lower-income countries. For that, they've decided to share their intellectual property behind these pills with something called the Medicines Patent Pool, or the MPP. Prashant, tell us about the history of the MPP. Where did this Medicines Patent Pool come from? So it goes back to the days of antiretroviral access for HIV. And there were, you know, despite trying through many different approaches, there wasn't sufficient access, especially to new kinds of HIV treatments that were coming out in early 2000s. And so MPP was born somewhere around 2010 with an intent that it'll enable better access to new HIV treatments globally, especially in low-income countries, by sharing intellectual property from companies which were developing the HIV medicines with generic companies who were willing and had the wherewithal to manufacture these drugs. So that was their start. They were reasonably successful in making it happen for uh, many HIV medicines. And around 2015-16, they also started getting into tuberculosis and hepatitis C as some new treatments were coming out for these diseases. And they've, they've had success in rolling out some some new treatments early and getting them 
getting larger number of patients on treatment using them, especially for HIV. The medicines patent pool has an incredibly important um, institutional history of, of where it came from and these, these helping to deal with these public health tragedies of the, of the past. Let's go into the, the details of how it's, how it's supposed to work, at least in theory. How is the MPP supposed to work? What's it supposed to do? So think of the MPP as a as a middleman, as a you know what some economists would call as a two-sided marketplace. One side are global pharmaceutical companies who are developing innovative treatments and other uh, health technologies. On the other side are generic companies who have manufacturing capability, but not necessarily the intellectual property and the know-how. And instead of the companies having to negotiate voluntary licenses individually with the generic companies, which can become cumbersome and quite onerous for uh, companies who don't have experience and have done this at large scale in the past, MPP acts as the go-between. It reduces the transaction costs for the companies by having standard templates for how to do the agreements, give them the trust and the confidence that they have helped identify the manufacturers who will produce higher quality, will apply for a stringent regulatory or a WHO pre-qualification standard once they've received the licenses and so on. And for the generic companies, which especially the smaller ones who have no experience taking in licenses from larger companies, they find it hard to go and even establish connects with some global multinational companies. So MPP, in a way, helps them uh, connect. So MPP provides value by helping to connect and to reduce the, the, the transactions costs for both the, the big pharmaceutical company, the one that owns the intellectual property, and the generic manufacturer that wants a, a legal way to use that intellectual property to ultimately make the, make the drug. But l- let's take a, another step back here for, for a moment. For these big global pharmaceutical companies, the MPP certainly isn't their only option. In fact, Big Pharma would say that they have a lot to worry about. They've got big responsibilities. The big one is they need to protect their intellectual property to make profits because it's it's only those profits that fund the research and development costs for their labs. And, and so their scientists can come up with new drugs in the first place. And we, society, we want new drugs. Governments aren't publicly funding enough research and development. So the companies need to do it. And in order for them to continue to do it, society needs to let them make profits. If society is now also asking these companies to think about global public health and and how to get people in lower income countries access to their new drug, the MPP isn't the only way they could do it though, right? So where does the, the bulk of the profits these companies earn from their drugs, where does that come from? And what are the economic trade-offs that these companies are, are thinking about when they're considering whether or not to use the, the MPP? Bulk of the revenue and the profits for the larger global pharmaceutical companies come from high-income or upper-middle-income country markets. So from their standpoint, they can think about how to serve the lower-middle-income country markets or low-income country markets in in three ways. The first would be they start offering a tiered pricing program where they discount their drugs significantly and offer them at almost marginal cost in low and low middle income countries. Now that comes with some you know, transaction costs as to how do you set up that program, how do you ensure that nothing comes back because it is still product manufactured by the originator company. 
The second is to do bilaterally a voluntary license with a generic manufacturer and tell them, you manufacture this, but you can only sell in your own country or a subset of countries. That product that is manufactured now is not the originator company's product. So in that sense, the risk of that coming back are slightly lower. And a third is, instead of doing it voluntarily with each generic company separately, bilaterally, do it through the medicines patent pool, which then gives you more economies of scale and scope because MPP is doing this for, for multiple groups and organizations. So one thing you said there was was tiered pricing. There, I suppose, the, the pharmaceutical company could manufacture the drug itself and, and export it to lower-income countries just at a lower price that reflects those consumers having a lower ability to pay than, than folks in rich countries. But there, as you said, the company might be worried about something coming back, what I guess we might call parallel exports. They, they worry that the Swedish orange pill with the Merck logo and number 82 on the side that was originally destined for a developing country and bought there for a low price might then somehow be reshipped back to the United States market, resold at a higher price, but by somebody else, and that would erode Merck's profits in, in, in the US, say. Two ways that they can get around this are either voluntary licensing or using the MPP, there you have a generic manufacturer making the equivalent pill, but one that isn't going to be branded with that official number 82 Merck logo and, and orange pill, or a pill that's necessarily yet approved by the, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. And so using generic manufacturers can also help the company segment these two different types of markets, the home market and the, the lower income market. So they don't need to worry as much about their profits getting eroded back at home. This is some of the theory behind the MPP, getting it to work and getting big global pharmaceutical companies to participate in it. Let's talk about what the medicines patent pool is doing for the, the Merck and Pfizer drugs specifically. When did these relationships start and how are Merck and, and Pfizer using the MPP? Yeah, so let's start with uh, Pfizer. So in November of 2021, they signed a, a licensing agreement with MPP in which they committed that they will share their intellectual property with MPP with an idea that MPP can then further sub-license it out to qualified generic manufacturers. Now, qualified generic manufacturers here means that Companies who can meet the standards of quality, make the commitment to access, uh, have the capability and, and technical uh, equipment and other things to get them started very quickly. So does Pfizer make that determination or is it the MPP that decides who's you know a qualified? Yeah, good question. So the way the process works is that after the agreement with between MPP and Pfizer, MPP then issues an expression of a public expression of interest. So generic manufacturers who are interested in taking on a sub-license from MPP send in their application in which they describe who they are, what their experience is, what their technical team is, what their plant capacity is, how soon will they be able to make it, other kinds of details like that. And based on that, MPP and Pfizer jointly then agree on which will be the companies who will receive the sub-license. And in the case of Pfizer and MPP, in uh, March of this year, they announced 35 companies spread around the world, many of them in India, but um, spread out globally, who will become the sub-licensees from MPP. 
and they will, over time, start manufacturing Paxlovid. And in these relationships, is Pfizer getting paid at all uh, for the, you know, the drugs that these other companies are going to be manufacturing and, and selling in other countries around the world? I think it, I mean, in this particular case, as long as COVID is a public health emergency of international concern or a pandemic, Pfizer will not receive any royalties. But after that, it may receive a 5% royalty on sales. That has been the typical structure that MPP has uh, negotiated these uh, contracts in the past. Okay, Sorry, I cut you off. That was Pfizer. Tell us about Merck. Yeah, so Merck had a, a slightly different structure, which means in... Um, Earlier part of 2021, they, they went ahead and had already signed some bilateral voluntary licenses with six or seven manufacturers or eight eventually manufacturers. And then in October of 2021, Merck signed an agreement with MPP. And then January of this year, MPP then sub-licensed to 27 companies, once again spread out in India, China. There was a company in South Africa. And similarly, similar to Pfizer, I think the commitment is that Merck will not receive any royalties from from Molnupurvar sales as long as uh, COVID is a pandemic or a public health emergency of international concern. Okay, so that's the basic setup. Why did Merck also do these bilateral deals uh, outside of the MPP, do you think? Uh, it's, it's an interesting question. So I think one way to think about it, it about it would be if you have very close and trusted generic manufacturers who you have worked with in the past, is, and Merck has had a portfolio of HIV drugs for which they've done similar deals and other, other antivirals. So then you say, well, I already know a few of them. Before I go through the structure of MPP, maybe I can expedite things by working with a smaller subset and getting them going faster because I already know them. I have a a template of how I work with them. Last time when I did a technical know-how transfer, I had already established a project management structure with them. So let me use that, get this done quickly. And then in addition, also go with MPP so that it's more expansive. It can give licenses to a larger number of manufacturers. So that's in a way a two-pronged approach. One, which is focusing on expedited expedited access and getting things done quicker. And the other, which is focusing on a more expanded access approach. In those earlier bilateral deals that, that Merck did were with legitimate Indian generic manufacturers. This was CIPLA and, and Dr. Reddy's lab. These were some of the major players in, in the Indian market there. So uh, that, that's super interesting. In theory, this sounds amazing. The medicine's patent pool has helped us solve the, the problem of how to transfer technology from a rich country IP rights holder like Pfizer or Merck for these antiviral treatments for for COVID-19 to generic manufacturers in poor countries. But it turns out that's not enough. Despite this great institutional setup, we're not yet seeing the production of these antivirals taking place in lots of places around the world. And so the big question is, why not? Okay, Prashant, on Trade Talks, we're problem solvers. Let's try to figure out some of the contributing reasons behind why we haven't seen manufacturing of, of these things scale up yet. What do you think is the, is the biggest constraint so far? Yeah, so the one big constraint is uncertain demand. Oral antivirals are not as well 
utilized in the past in low-income countries as vaccines. Demand has been weaker. And in in the case of Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, I mean, like we said, I mean, there are multiple manufacturers. But unless countries put the products on their national guidelines or national treatment guidelines, there won't be as much demand. And unless there is demand, the manufacturers aren't going to put everything in, in their resourcing to get the products, higher manufacturing capacity, foster and accelerated bioequivalent studies, and so on. So the nature of contracts which were offered by the U.S. government to Pfizer and Merck, there is no equivalent of that being offered for the low- and middle-income country setting. And as a result, the demand uncertainty then translates into not having sufficient supply. It manifests itself in different ways. Very recently, though, we've had a form of a guarantee from the Clinton Health Access Initiative to a subset of the Indian companies which have received the license from uh, Medicines Patent Pool for Paxlovid. And this guarantee comes with, uh, with the terms of uh, price, which is less than $25 per treatment course, uh, about 4.5 million treatment courses monthly as, as the volume. Still, a lot of details have not fully come out uh, regarding this, but those are the kinds of structures which can help manufacturers underwrite some of the demand-side risk they face. But demand-side risk or demand uncertainty is the big challenge. The demand-side uncertainty does seem like a, like a big challenge. As you said, in the United States, it was tackled by the, the federal government making these big commitments to, to buy these, these two drugs. We haven't seen that take place by governments in, in poorer countries. I guess the analog on this was on the vaccine story was COVAX. You did have this collection of uh, entities come together and procure a large number of COVID-19 vaccines that would ultimately be distributed to lower and lower and, and middle income countries around the world through that kind of collective initiative. And maybe what the Clinton Health Access Initiative is, is doing here is sort of the analog of that when it comes to these, these oral antivirals, or at least the first step. Okay, so demand is one big problem, demand uncertainty. How about on the supply side? What do you see as, the, as the, some of the key challenges there? Yeah, so demand uncertainty manifests itself in many ways on the supply side. One way to think about it is that if the overall size of the pie is highly uncertain, not only does that matter, but the second thing that matters is for a given manufacturer, what portion of the pie will I get? And if it is being split amongst 35 companies, then I worry that I will get a relatively small portion of a highly uncertain market. And then I am hesitant to make large investments in retrofitting my plant, my equipment, adding that extrusion line to make that a special blister package, or sourcing my active ingredients from new suppliers, setting up my supply network from new sources. So all of those investments I become hesitant to make unless I see that the demand uncertainty or the size of the pie that comes from it to me. And I think the fact that uh, MPP has given 35 licenses to a market which is by no means large or growing adds to this equation in some ways, in my opinion. So perversely, by 
granting so many sublicense possibilities, uh, they may have exacerbated the problem. Now, what is the, the 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 Clinton approach? Are they contracting with all 35 uh, when it comes to the? No, the they are working with a smaller subset of uh, companies, uh, the generic companies in India, seven, eight, ten. So as a result, it at least makes the incentives to accelerate production capacity and to accelerate bioequivalent studies and um, supplier identification types of things, it accelerates them to some degree, right? Again, it may not be the strongest form of a contractual commitment yet, but at least it's signaling that, yes, if you make it, you will get some portion of this market, especially if you are the winner in the race and are the early entrant, you will have some more monies from Global Fund, UNICEF, other agencies, USAID, who will buy these treatments. Okay, so on the supply side, one potential challenge is uh, potentially too much competition, and you're worried about entering and, and facing and dealing with that. Are there other factors on the supply side you're, you're worried about? Yeah, so one is that many of the starting materials to make the, in particular, the, Paxlo, the Pfizer product are relatively new. And it's not that there are established sources ready to go that you can just send out your purchase order and they will start shipping you equivalent tonnage for millions and millions of treatment courses. So new supplies have to be developed. And as they are being developed in the early stages of this market, there will be less supply available of some of the starting materials. Same thing with active pharmaceutical ingredient. Fewer suppliers, especially for those manufacturers who are not doing in-house production of the active pharmaceutical ingredient. The other part is regulatory. One is, of course, you need reference material to do bioequivalent studies. You know, when do you start them? And, and you know, this is still getting into the nitty-gritty of how bioequivalent studies can be done and can you truly accelerate the timelines for that. So that is another part. And embedded within the regulatory piece is what is the regulatory pathway for a company? So if a generic company in India is content with selling largely to the Indian market, then it doesn't need WHO pre-qualification. All it requires is approval by the Indian regulator. But if it does want to serve the global low- and middle-income country market through the Global Fund or other UN agencies, then it requires WHO pre-qualification. So many of the companies are still trying to navigate which of these pathways they'll take, which markets they will cater to, and so on. And so bioequivalence, in the, in the case of something like Paxlovid, you might have an Indian generic manufacturer that's producing its version of it. At the end of the day, you need to scientifically test that that pill is exactly equivalent in, t- in terms of you know, its, its effect on, on, on people as the original Pfizer Paxlovid pill was. And that's a process that requires regulatory oversight, and it is not easy to, to get done. Okay, so lots of potential challenges here, even when we work out the intellectual property rights issue. Are there things that policymakers can be doing to try to help move this along, to help facilitate the outcome that we want, which is actually more manufacturing quicker of these antivirals? Yeah, so one is similar to the Clinton Health Access Initiative agreement. There needs to be some kind of firm guarantees how to operationalize them still needs some more work to determine because the size of the market and the market uncertainty are not the same as they were for vaccines. So that's one part. The second piece is maybe technical assistance to the companies which are receiving the licenses so that they can do this faster 
wherever there are steps which become critical bottlenecks, can we help them overcome those steps so that they can come to the market and file their regulatory approval uh, quicker? Also, understanding regulatory pathways better and having clarity on what will be the regulatory pathway. Sometimes it's just not knowing what kind of bioequivalence will be expected and, and things like that. And the last is, it's worth starting to think about a stockpile. So think of it this way, that we, we have a lower, uh, lower trajectory of the pandemic in the next few months, and then a lot of countries in the low and middle income country category start thinking, we don't need to worry about Paxlovid or oral antivirals, generally speaking, they don't buy. And as a result, the manufacturers switch their production lines or put them on temporary pause and start making other things. Now, as we said at the beginning, their lead time to start manufacturing again is probably two, three months, somewhere in that uh, order. So, And then imagine a scenario where we have a wave like what we had with the Delta wave, and suddenly there is almost a bank run on Paxlovid again. It will take us two, three months to get those manufacturers to get their uh, production aligned to start making at sufficient capacity once again. So can we stockpile for that duration of two, three months, which can help us get through this immediate phase till the time that the manufacturers can come up? But again, how will it be run? How will we um, rotate the stock in that stockpile? How much will we keep are, again, operational questions that we still haven't resolved. Stockpiling in, in inventories are increasingly important in, in a number of different areas, I think, as we've seen throughout the, the pandemic and supply shortages. Uh, hopefully, these drugs will be easier to stockpile than, than the vaccines, my understanding is. They, they don't expire as quickly, and so we can kind of keep them, keep them around longer. And then on your other point on, on the regulatory issues, hopefully, um, you know, the MPP having done its work identifying companies with history of making antivirals in the past, uh, that means they know how to get these things approved, how to work with regulators to show things like bioequivalence, and that'll hopefully make them able to more quickly work through the process this time around. We'll see. Okay. Even if we worked out all of those things, though, these antivirals are, are, do have some other challenges of, of, of getting to people for, for global public health needs. Tell us about some of those. What are the what are the delivery challenges, especially in lower and, and, and middle income countries? Yeah, so the, I think the the big challenge is test and treat as a strategy is something we struggle with even here in the United States, right? How can we have someone who wakes up a morning with uh, uh, the slight symptoms of COVID within the next twenty four hours get tested and you know prescribed and dispensed a treatment? Right, there are three steps in a test prescribe and dispense, how can we get those three steps seamlessly done in low and middle income countries where the health systems are not necessarily as well developed or as well resourced within the window of 72 hours within which the efficacy of the oral antivirals is uh, proven or, or highest? And this means the turnaround times for testing have to be smaller. This means that channels for where people can get treatment dispensed and prescribed have to be well designed. Imagine going to a very busy government clinic where there are um, hundreds of patients waiting, you know, mothers with the young children who don't have COVID but have other 
other acute uh, diseases they've come for. And the, using the same clinics for doing COVID test and treat can be challenging in other, many respects. So I think we've got to resolve many of those issues. The second part has to do with drug-drug interactions, right? So Paxlovid in particular adverse, uh, has DDI or drug-drug interactions with a number of cardiovascular and other non-communicable disease drugs. So knowing what is a patient currently taking and then determining whether to pull them off of some of those drugs to give them Paxlovid or not give them Paxlovid is a decision that requires good algorithms. Hopefully we can do them with digital tools and so on, but we are not ready yet. This is gonna be my my last question for you. I like you to, to take a step back. On Trade Talks, the World Trade Organization is a, is a central character that we often come back to. In Geneva earlier uh, this month, as part of a new WTO agreement, countries agreed to a limited waiver of intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines. This came after two years of a pretty politically contentious debate over the issue. I don't want us to get into the details of of that TRIPS waiver agreement for vaccines. That in itself would take an entire separate episode. But from the experience of these antivirals and how intellectual property is being transferred from one company to another through the MPP, do you think there's useful lessons from what we're seeing there for for people that have been focused on the COVID-19 vaccines patent waiver discussion? So first, I think we've got to see very clearly that even when the two companies in question here, Merck and Pfizer, voluntarily shared intellectual property and to some degree technical know-how for their products, even in that setting, it's not as if it is a magic button that you press and we will have large-scale commercial production occurring in multiple sites in the world. We still need lots of steps regulatory, quality, technical know-how, plant, which have to be resolved. If you look at the timelines for from the date that MPP announced its licenses for Paxlovid till we'll probably have the first submissions to WHOPQ or pre-qualification for regulatory uh, approvals, it would probably be eight, nine months, maybe 12 months, so sometime next year. And these are products which are small molecule antivirals, structurally somewhat similar to antiretrovirals, which many of the companies have been making for decades now due to their work in HIV. So the key takeaway is that intellectual property may be one, but not the most pressing barrier in terms of getting products out for patient access in low and middle income countries. If it is challenging even for small molecules, we can imagine it is going to be even more challenging for complex biologics and vaccines. So I think my view is that if the debate on intellectual property happening at the uh, level of the World Trade Organization, which includes senior government officials, trade negotiators, diplomats, if it distracts attention away from some of the most important things that we have to do, such as get these 35 manufacturers to do their bioequivalents quickly, have them file their regulatory uh, dossier quickly, have a deployment strategy, have digital algorithms for 
drug-drug uh, interactions. If it distracts attention from those things, then I think it is futile. If it is happening in, in, in a separate vacuum and it's not distracting us from do, doing these things, then perhaps, yes, it may have some benefits in the long term. I think that's where, where I would come down to. And so uh, on my end, to conclude, sharing intellectual property during a pandemic is, is obviously great. And, and this medicines patent pool uh, may have worked to create matches in, in transfer technology, but it's not the end of the story. We need these complementary government interventions to help ensure demand and to help overcome input shortages and address some of the regulatory challenges that Prashant described for us. Essentially, all the same problems that we saw that slowed down vaccine productions are, are, are happening here as well. And stepping back, we'll need more research and development to come up with additional treatments in the future as well. Thanks, Prashant. Thank you. Before we conclude, one final disclaimer. Think of this as the small print on the back of the, the blister packaging that Prashant was describing to us. To be fair, the doctors will tell you that these two drugs are helpful, but they're also not perfect. The Merck drug, for example, is not recommended for pregnant people. More so than vaccines, these pills can also have harmful interactions with drugs someone might be taking to treat some other disease. These drugs can also have side effects. In fact, when I got COVID for the first time last month, my doctor recommended that because I was already vaccinated and boosted and, and had only mild COVID symptoms and didn't really have any risk factors, she recommended I not bother to take either of these treatments. And so I just gutted it out. So we still need scientists to invent better antivirals for COVID-19. My Peterson Institute colleague, Monica Dabola, has, has just published a, a piece on this challenge facing governments. But for people that have contracted COVID-19 that are at high risk of hospitalization or death, there is evidence that these two drugs can reduce those risks. And that is all for Trade Talks. As always, a huge thank you to Colin Warren, our audio guy. And thanks also to Prashant Yadav at the Center for Global Development and INSEAD. Do check out his recent paper with Javier Guzman and Julia Kaufman titled Policy Actions for the U.S. Government to Accelerate Access to Oral Antivirals for COVID-19 in Low- and Middle-Income Countries. And check out the latest from Monica Dabola, my PIE colleague, on needing an operation warp speed for COVID treatments. And check out my latest written work on COVID-19 vaccines and the Defense Production Act. We'll put links to all of these in the show notes, on the Trade Talks website, and in the Trade Talks Twitter feed. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown, and we're also found at at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. <laughs>